0: Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, Colonel Retired Stu Braden. He's the President and CEO of the Global SOF Foundation. He's retired as the U.S. Army Special Forces Colonel in May of 2014 after over 32 years of service. His Special Forces assignments included service with elements of Joint Special Operations Command and the Deputy Director of Operations at Special Operations Command Europe and extensive service with the 7th and 10th Special Forces Group. He commanded several SFODA's A-teams and served as a battalion operations officer as well as a company commander of the counter unit designated as the Sinks in extremist force. He participated in Operation Just Cause and served tours as an advisor in El Salvador and Peru. He's a veteran of multiple unconventional and other special operations with 10th Special Forces Group in the Balkans and numerous locations in northern and central Africa. We welcome him into the studio. How are you, Stu?
1: Good. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you're on here. We finally got everything kind of worked together and we're able to hook up and do this. So we have so much to talk about um, with everything that's going on in Afghanistan, everything with your career. But I want to start off. As I was doing my research on you, um, you come from a military family and not just a military family, but your father and brother are retired army officers and they serve for over 53 years combined with your 30 years. That makes it almost a century in one family of military. So my first question out of the box is, was there ever any expectations or worry on your part that you maybe wouldn't live up to the family or Was there expectations put in front of you that you thought, oh, man, this is going to be difficult to do?
1: Um, My grandfather was also in the military, so he he was a sergeant major in North Carolina that got activated for World War II and then get deactivated until, I'd say, probably until the late 50s. Um, So, yeah, we kind of grew up in this business and stuff. I, I had no intentions of coming in the military, to be frank. I was a football player playing high school football in Hampton, Virginia. And, you know, the military was the last thing on my mind. I always dug it, you know, it was fun, but when you're 18 or 19, man, you have no idea what the heck you're doing. So, um, (laughs) I never really thought I went to the university of South Carolina at first. And when they got in trouble, I ended up going to the Citadel. And, um, I was more interested in going in the military as a lawyer and, you know, doing other things. And, um, You know, I'd always been inspired by the movie The Green Beret with John Wayne, like so many people that join our ranks. um, The more I got into it, the more I liked it. I was in the National Guard as an enlisted guy for a little over two years. And, you know, I just kind of, the more I was in it, the more I enjoyed it. The more I was in it, the more I wanted to do. Um, You know, I always wanted to do something more, a little bit more than just, you know. So ultimately ended up in the special ops world. Well, let me ask you a
0: question, because th- that was the interesting part to me. So a- as you started as an officer, you were an Army Cavalry Scout, um, and uh, you were commissioned through the Citadel ROTC, and you came as an arm- armor officer. So yep. you, I, I personally don't know of a lot of people that come from the armor area. Over into special ops, you mostly see infantry. Uh, tons,
1: really. I was a 19 Delta Cav Scout in the South Carolina National Guard, Troop B, Seven Thirteenth Cav, out of Buford, South Carolina. And um, yeah, you see tons. I mean, Lieutenant General Fran Bodet just gave up command of U.S. Army Special Operations Command. He was a Citadel graduate and uh, was an armor officer as a lieutenant. Yeah.
0: Wow. I, you know, I had never really thought of that. I didn't know that there was such kind of a rich, rich history there. Um, yeah, I started
1: in Vietnam, you know, because uh, armor wasn't used heavily in um, Vietnam right. like it was. not so a lot of those guys went, became aviators or came into the special ops world. So when I came into SF, there were tons of guys. We had just become a branch in 1987, and there were tons of guys that had started out armor. So
0: you've done conventional and special operations. So in your eyes, what's the difference with you, the big difference between conventional and special, because I've had a couple of guys on here that have done both and everyone kind of has a little different answer of why they think the two are so different from each other.
1: Uh, it's just the, the level that you work at, you know, it's higher expectations, it's higher risk, higher reward. Um, you work in smaller entities um what you're generally doing is um you're operating way out way out on the periphery where you would never let a conventional unit do um give you an example so if you look at how conventional forces operate in combat zones they operate inside of what's called the medevac ring and the only people that can go outside that is special forces and that's because the the training of the special forces medics or you know it's just ridiculous it's extremely high um and so because of their professionalism and their training and expertise um soft can go outside the medevac ring, and conventional formations just can't do that and so that alone allows you opportunities in the special ops world that you would never get in the conventional world just that's just a little vignette you know
0: well, I've, I've had a guest on here that said that, you know, when they talk about guys coming through the pipeline, you know, uh, they had it in Vietnam and then they brought it back um, where you go in a pipeline, just go straight into special forces. The, the worrisome that they had was that you get these young guys in there and yes, they don't have any bad habits or anything, but that they're working at a level that they wouldn't have at that rank in a conventional army. Um, so they're working with, you know, general staff, they're working at a much higher level. And that, that was a concern for them was he didn't know if they were quite mature enough yet, um, to handle things like that. Would you agree with something like that? I mean, you were in a command position, so.
1: So when I first came in, we had what was called rep 63 SF babies, same thing. They brought guys in, they were either your very best or your very worst. And, um, The ones that stayed became some of the highest ranking nco sergeant majors that we would have Uh, a lot of them got out or got thrown out so you get you know you get the two extremes um now they have what's called the x-ray series and stuff and when it originally started was because um you know everybody was deploying post 9-11 and the conventional force didn't like us pilfering their people the thing is, you know, the people that we wanted didn't want to ban their units. They had a sense of pride about themselves. They didn't want to just bail in their units as they're getting ready to go to combat and stuff, nor did they want to spend 18 months in a training cycle, not deploying. right? So, I mean, people joined the military to actually practice their, their trade, you know, people as crazy as it sounds, that's what they want to do. Um, and so the SF babies, you know, they were hit or miss, you know, I had some great ones, you know, some of the best sergeant majors, some of the best NCOs I ever had were SF babies. Um, <clears throat> I, don't, I probably wasn't around, I you know, at the time and they were getting rid of, most of them were senior, you know, when I came in. So they had already been through the weeding out process. Um, the x-rays are, again, it started where we were going to bring in guys. They had to have what's called life experience and stuff. But like most things, you know, that just gets thrown by the wayside and you know it's they were just letting anybody in off the streets and stuff and they're great you know they're smart uh only about 17 of them stay in the military so you know that's not good because you've got a huge investment going into these people um i think the special forces command has just made a, a a conscious effort to go back and spend more time recruiting from the conventional force and the active army and the active components um because you know, seventeen percent is a bad investment, and so you know, even though you get some great people out of there, it's just not. Um, it's not. You know, you are losing money and you are losing time in that. And that. So, um, their recruiting has changed considerably and stuff, and so you are losing a lot. Of them. A lot of them come in. You know, it's kind of like the SEAL community. They have a lot of their enlisted guys or college graduates. They all just want to get in there. They want to get through buds. They want to get a couple pumps under their belts. You know, some deployments. they want to get out you know and go work on wall street and tell everybody they were seal. you know um the x-rays a lot of that's the same stuff you know they're good people you know they're not all bad people it's just they got just a different calling in life the problem is is you know to get really good at this trade you got to in it for a long time you know the guys sergeant majors that i i mean i had kenny mcmullen was my first company sergeant major in Panama, when I showed up, he was a Sante raider, multiple tours, Mac V Sau. He's a living legend. When he actually retired from Fort Bragg, North Carolina, he had more people at his retirement than they had at the 18th Airborne Corps change of command. Guy was, a, I mean, absolute legend. Um, so, you know, I, I grew up around those kind of people. And, and so um, I'm used to seeing these quality NCOs and folks that want to be there forever. You know they never want to be off a team. I think Sergeant Major McMullen was told that he had to become a Command Sergeant Major in Third Group, or they were gonna um, they were gonna retire him. And that's the only reason he became a Command Sergeant Major. He just wouldn't stay in an SF Company or an SF Battalion. He was the, he moved from A Company Third Battalion. We were in Panama up to the Ops Sergeant Major, and he was the Ops Sergeant Major during uh, Just Cause. He's the only time I've seen a Sergeant Major chew a colonel's ass like he was a private it was priceless i mean it was just absolute i was like dang i heard about it never saw it saw it and he was not being mean or angry he was just like you know guy made a mistake and there was no free chicken that day
0: well in in talking about that and you say you could get the best or the worst the 17 um you i have heard these other guys say you know they come in to get the trident Get a couple pumps under them, get out, start a gear company or something like that that they can put that trident to. In a kind of a different question, I know that you said it's not good because it's not a good return on investment. Can it ever be dangerous?
1: You know, I don't know, man. I to be fair, over the last 20 years I've been at such a senior level, I haven't been involved much with the tactical guys. I mean they're good. They're really good. I mean, everybody, you know, I mean, they're as good as they ever have been, you know, despite what people think or say. Um, they're extremely intelligent. Um, I No, I don't think so. I mean, the, the reality is, is you're trying to, you're trying to raise the future leaders, not just, you know, in special ops, but in the army or, you know, the military. And, and so you want your investment to count. You know, if you look around, like if you look at Afghanistan, you know, Vessy was the seal one star that was there. And Josh Rudd, you know, came out of the Ranger Regiment and worked at Fort Bragg, you know, at JSOC, and he was the two-star commanding the 82nd Airborne. I mean, these guys, we've all grown up around each other for the last 30 years. We all know each other personally, you know, so um, they're out commanding large conventional formations and doing a fabulous job, you know, it's that personal relationship that trust that bond, you know, that everybody has, that's what you want. You know, you want your current your junior leaders to become your senior leaders. So there's not a lot of drama. So when you're trying to get a whole bunch of people off an airfield, and it's a complete disaster, you know, you've got competent people that can, you know, do everything in their power to make that happen. And so that's what you're looking for. And that's why you just want folks for a little bit longer, you know,
0: when when you were conventional, I know that you said you always wanted more and, and, and you always wanted to do more. But what was it that really, what was the, if there was, one kind of event that said it's time to go over here? And, and there might not have been. There might have been, a, you know, a, a chain of it. But what was it that really set it into motion? I
1: was in the 11th Armored Cav on the East West German border. We were deployed on the border 300 days out of the year. We had phenomenal autonomy I mean, we were alone and unafraid. I had some of the finest NCOs and soldiers. I mean, I had some of the dumbest, you know, shitbirds in the world too. But but I I will tell you, man, we had that was one of the best trained units. I learned more. My platoon sergeant, I call he's the one of the world's largest Puerto Ricans in the world, man. He's massive. Used to be a basketball player at UPR. I mean, that's just that is a that is a beast of a man. You know, Leonardo Pacheco. He lives three miles from me right here in Tampa. And um and, I mean, I just learned so much from those guys, man. You know, like how to, you know, you thought you could learn. I'd been to ranger school, all this bullshit, you know, and I thought I knew what I was doing. But, you know, when you're around these kind of guys, man, you just quickly realize how awesome they are. And and what, I just wanted more autonomy. You know, I knew I'd end up having to go back to the United States. It, I'd end up in some battalion somewhere. And I was just like, you know, that's, I liked being out there with my little platoon on a platoon OPT, OP, you know, at our own base, you know, my first platoon was it. I had four M1 tanks. I had two dr- ITVs, which are, you know, improved tow vehicles, you know, one armor vehicles. I had two Dragon Track vehicles. I had my vehicle. I had uh, an engineer guy, I mean, a uh, an artillery guy assigned to me and a mortar, four deuce mortar tube, all in one platoon, 68 people as a second lieutenant. I mean, we let SEAL Commanders, O5s command that level of, I mean, it's seriously, it's a massive thing. Well, that's what and I was about it, to say for a second, Lieutenant, a that's a lot of lieutenant. people. Yeah, they give it to a dumb Lieutenant stuff. And then we reconfigured and I had a Pure, we went to Bradley's and M1's Pure, and then I had a Scout platoon and, you know, but I mean, we would operate sometimes 20, 20 kilometers between vehicles. Just you on your own vehicle, you're 20 kilometers away from the next vehicle. You know we were supposed to do all the screening and early warning when the russians came across for world war three you know and so you you had to you had to be good you know those 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 track commanders and you know those section leaders had to be extremely good at what they did because you had to keep the vehicle going you had to fight the vehicle you had to maneuver the vehicle i mean you had to do a lot of stuff you're just by yourself man you're just some e six out there just you know roaming the earth you know with a big armored vehicle um and, and they were just great. And so I just thought, you know, shoot, man, I just want to do something a little bit more. I mean, I liked it. So where else could I do that? And that was the special ops world. It was starting to become a branch. I was the first class recruited when it became a branch. So, you know, semi-career suicide in the days because, you know, you would leave your branch and you would basically tell them, hey, I love you, but I don't love you enough to stay. Um, And they would lie to you and tell you you were always welcome back. But, you know, the infantry branch would eat their own. You know, their whole deal is if you don't make it, man, have a nice day. Walmart's down the street. Um, But the armor branch was pretty cool about it. You know, I think in my infantry, I went to the infantry advanced course. There were 14 armor cav guys in there. 13 of us went into SF. Yep, We were all there to go into SF. So So we all made it. So let me
0: ask you, does that still transfer over today? Are there really that many armors still doing it today, you Couldn't think? Couldn't
1: tell you. Couldn't tell you. I mean, when they all show up when I, you know, and I was a lieutenant colonel, colonel, they are just guys with crossed arrows. I didn't, you know, right. some of them were out there. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's still armor guys out there and artillery and engineer and chemical and, you know, I mean, we get all kinds, man, you know.
0: You know, I, I haven't had anyone on yet on the show that, that has the experience from 80s, 90s that you do. And, and you talk about you were kind of the first line of defense when the
1: Russians... Is that your way with. of calling me old?
0: No, <laughs> by by no means. It's a, it's a serious question, though, because I don't think a lot of people know this because, you know, I think that that part of history has, with everything that's gone on for the last 20 years, has kind of been... Uh, I don't want to say swept under the rug, but a lot of people don't think about that cold war anymore. Um, how tense did it get? I mean, were there some real pucker moments while all oh, that yeah. was going on?
1: Yeah. I mean, well, from my experience, I was on the East West German border. So, you know, we'd watch everybody, you know, I'd say about every eight months, they kill somebody trying to break, you know, across the border. They just mow them down, man. You know, I mean, uh, so you saw a lot of that, you know, the, the, uh, I would submit to you around 1984, the army went through a massive transformation where our leadership were guys that had fought in Vietnam and they were angry. You know, the Colin Powell's, the Schwarzkopf, my father, I mean, that generation were pissed off. You know, they won every battle but lost the war. They were angry with their leadership. Um, and they vowed that they would never allow that to happen to the army again. And so, you know, when you saw Desert Storm happen, you saw the product that those those leaders brought forward. I mean, they it was they was hard, man. I mean, it was some unpleasant days. I mean, you just worked your butt off, man. This legalized slavery. I mean, you just grind. I mean, every day seven days a week i think i'd gone 18 months in the cab before i ever had a day off like a saturday or sunday or something it was just nasty man just hard work um but great people you know you you build great relationships with the people like that that you're around you can't help it you know you're all suffering together so you learn to do stuff um but the Cold war was interesting you know i mean you, you have a, an entire generation right now in uh The military that's only grown up you know in the 9 11 era it's been 20 years right Right. so you have people that are going to actually retire this year they've joined at 9 11 that's all they know and you know i i laugh because everybody's now talking about the great power competition and how is special ops going to deal with russia and china hell we were doing it before 9 11 while everybody else was sitting on their butts you know, we were in all these little third world countries fighting the surrogates, you know, the Contras, the FMLN, the Sendero Luminoso. We were out there, all these places, fighting Russian and Soviet surrogates and Chinese surrogates all over the place, because that's what you do in a Cold War. Everybody else was just running around training and doing big army, big navy, and big air force crap. And we were deployed all over the world. We were the most deployed entities. Patriots, civil affairs, and special ops, most deployed people prior to 9-11. Like, we were tired when 9-11 happened. Everybody <laughs> else just got hit in the game. I tell people, hey, congratulations, welcome aboard. You know, welcome to the party, jackasses. We've been doing this for our entire lives. You know, um, everybody now says, oh, what are you going to do that there's not a CT fight? Well, you know, to be honest with you, after this week, there will you know, they've just perpetuated that. And so, but we're going to do the same thing. You know, China and Russia are going to fight you through surrogates and through, you know, unconventional methods. They're not going to, I mean, if you read their doctrine, most people don't even read their doctrine. They just, you know, they think it's going to be like World War III. But if the, the Russian and Chinese doctrine clearly states that their intent is to avoid a major theater conflict, they don't want a big World War III. They don't want it to do that. They want nothing to eat, because it might end up getting to where someone has to use a nuke. And so they want to avoid that altogether. They'll have small altercations, what they call conflicts, you know. But it's not going to be full scale, you know, combat like war. It won't. They don't. They'll never let it get to that. And so, um, at least now, you know, that's their current doctrine and stuff. Um, but you know, we all want to buy, buy more joint strike fighters and all this stuff, which are deterrence, right? You know, the question is, is how much deterrence do we need? Um, they actually proportion it. You know, like they do artillery and fires and everything else, because they know they can't just buy, you know, until they feel like they're full. You know, they they have a, a certain amount and they know what they're doing. They kind of pro, they a little bit more programmatic in how they approach it. And we don't do that, you know. We 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 say how many ships we want in the navy, and then we try to figure out where we're going to put them all over the map. And you know, they don't do that. They figure out how much they need in each location, and that's what they put there, and that's what they build to, and that's what they work toward. Allows them to have less, but more in certain locations and stuff. So, but you know, the Cold War. I mean, you're aren't we in it now? Some would say. I mean, I think we're back, man. I mean, looks the same to me. The nuke threat's not there. I don't think the nuke threat was that big when I was in the 80s, as everybody says it was. You know, when you have nuclear assurance, everybody's like, no one's going to pull the trigger because it just would be ugly. You know, we're all gone. So, and, they and you know, everybody, they realized they couldn't fight us conventionally. They'd lose. And, and, you know, we had a a nuke first policy, which meant that, you know, we feel super threatened. We will use tactical nukes on you. We don't have those anymore. We just have the big ones, you know, which is so you can't use proportionality or scale or anything like that. And so they used a small nuke on us. The only thing we could do is use one of these massive ones. Which is, you know, not proportional, you know, they have a full scale of them, whereas we don't. you know we've we've given up so many of the short and mid-range nukes that you know kind of put ourselves at a disadvantage. Well, I don't know what, if that answers your question no, 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 it
0: does. Well okay, so what is the difference? and i I think this is interesting because I don't think a lot of people talk about this anymore. Like you said, they don't read doctrine. they don't, you know, it's 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 kind of an afterthought. but, when you talk about that, what is the difference fighting it then and fighting it now? Because you said it's it's kind of the same thing. It looks the same thing to you. But I think you would agree with, with cyber warfare and, and all the other things that we're using. Um, there's got to be some differences between them. So if you can go into what the difference is when you were fighting, then now.
1: So in the old days, it was surrogates and stuff, and they were just basically doing insurgencies, right? You'd see them do things in Nicaragua. You know, you had Cubans in Angola and South, you know, in Africa, all over the place, Cuban trainers. Again, you know, Soviet surrogates and stuff. You had them, um, you had them supporting, you know, people like the Sendero Luminoso, the the, the FMLN in El Salvador. So the, so the, the rest of the Soviets were everywhere doing, you know, what they were doing. The Chinese, of course, you know what they did in Korea, you know what they were doing in Vietnam. They did the same support in Malaysia, you know, so they they, they had their hands in a lot of things that were going on out there. Um, in those days, it was more of kinetic and stuff. And so you fast forward to where we are today, they they now call it, um, it depends on who you're talking to, but it's now referred to this, this year is irregular warfare. And irregular warfare is not just a military thing. It's a whole of government approach. It's soft, it's cyber, it's intel, it's information, it's economic, it's political, right? They mess with your elections. Oh, by the way, we do that too. You know, the Americans have been doing that since, what, the 40s? I think we did the Greek elections in 38. You know, we were heavily involved in making sure those went the right way, as we would say. We just don't like it when someone does it to us. But, you know, I mean, that's just the reality. But this has been going on for, for a long, long time. Um, it's never been as... We never thought it was as overt, you know, where we were we could actually sense it and feel it, you know. Um, it's hard to prove, you know, because it's all digital and stuff. So there's a lot of digital warfare out there that's happening. But it's all called irregular warfare. And, you know, every there's a lot of entities inside the U.S. government that have a role in it. Unfortunately, there's no one element inside the US government that, that synchronizes and deconflicts all of the irregular warfare activities doesn't happen, you know, doesn't happen in the Pentagon, it doesn't happen in the NSC just kind of doesn't happen. And that's the first reason you're, I mean, we'll, you know, we'll change as soon as we have a catalyst and there's a bunch of dead Americans. And then we'll create, like we did at nine 11, we'll have Northcom homeland security. We'll, you know, we'll actually get our crap together, but you know, but I mean, the reality is it takes a bunch of dead Americans before we change. We talk about change all the time, but we just do not like it. It's not good. It's not fun.
0: Who would you say of everyone that we're talking about right now with with China, Iran, Afghanistan the Taliban, ISIS, if you could take a pick, what do you think is the biggest threat right now?
1: Existential it's China. I mean, they're they're committed to changing the dynamics and changing changing things on the ground. The problem you have is it's the war you want versus the war you have, right? And al-Qaeda is going to reconstitute if they haven't already. I mean, I don't, I'd don't. i love to see the intelligence reports of when they, estimates of when they predict ISIS-K, ISIS and al-Qaeda reconstitute. They'll be able to do it in Afghanistan because the Taliban are the Haqqani, which are just, a, you know, a massive terrorist criminal organization. I mean, they'd sell their mothers for a quarter. And so, you know, they don't care. They're going to, you know, and they're not going to be able to, basically rule the whole country, they just won't be able to and stuff. And so it's almost certain that those terrorist organizations are going to be able to flourish in Afghanistan, at least they're going to have a safe haven, if nothing else and stuff. And so um, I think you'll see more tax on the US. You know, um, I think there'll be a big move to get us out of Iraq in October, Iraqi elections are coming, you know, we'll get a new government will come in, they'll ask us to leave for the second or third time, whatever it is. We'll get asked to leave Syria as well. You know, I hope is that we we don't, I would declare the Kurdistan, I just declare Kurdistan to put a US embassy in Erbil, you know, I wouldn't give the Iranians Iraq, I just wouldn't do it, you know, some things are worth dying for, man. That's just gonna be, that should be one of them. You know, a lot of people have a hard time with that, but you know, if you keep backing up at some point in time, you're gonna have to fight. If you give up too much good ground, you know, you, you lessen your probability of success. You'll just end up paying for it more dearly up front in another way. So um, yeah, there's gonna be a lot of changes, you know, over the next year. I mean. 've we've, we've lost a lot of trust as a nation you know you can get it back but it's hard my old boss you know Admiral Bill McCraven used to say you can't surge trust and that's a fact you know if you if you don't know somebody and you're trying to build a, a, a trustful relationship in the middle of a combat zone it's hard it's hard you want to have that relationship before you start doing combat operations and stuff and so I think we've got to go and, build trust. I don't think, I don't think we're thinking about that now. I think we're thinking about pulling everything back into the motherland and, you know, I'm not a globalist, but you know, I think that's the dumbest crap I've ever heard. You know, I just wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't give them the freedom of action they actually want. I just don't think it's smart.
0: So two questions of that, cause that's a, I'm glad that you said globalist and everything. Let's talk about uh, the Taliban right now. You were saying that, you know, they would sell their own mother and stuff. You would agree that organizations like that have become less of a terrorist organization, not saying that they don't do terrorist acts, but less of a terrorist organization, more of a criminal organization. Um, I Uh, And the reason I say that is because of the transfer of weapons all over, using uh, the use of hawalas, all those different kinds of things that are going back and forth between the countries. They have become more criminal minded than terrorist minded. And and if you disagree, by all means, please tell me. I don't think it's a homogeneous
1: thing. I think the Taliban are like anybody else. It depends on what faction, where they are. You know, they're all tribal based. Right. So every tribe is totally different and the tribal elders have a different take on everything. You know, the Taliban were very anti-drug. Well, guess what? They're the biggest drug runners now you met, right? So, you know, they become, you know, what was the guy, AZA, you know? He was the guy, the Pablo Escobar of uh, of Afghanistan. He's still running free, man. We can't touch him. That guy's like a gajillionaire. He owns like one, two thirds of Helmand province, lives in Kabul, man. I saw his house. AZA, the average American's never heard of him. They go, well, who's the big drug lord? It's him. You know, every DEA guy knows him and they have like dreams of killing that guy. He'd be like, you know, DEA agent of the year if they could get that guy. But, you know, I mean, he's, but I mean, he moves more more poppy and heroin. St- I mean, he's the biggest in the world, right? He's a gajillionaire. I mean, just stupid amounts of money. Um, I don't know how the Taliban are going to deal with that, but each sect is different and stuff. But, you know, they do torture people. You know, I guess they're flying around, dude, hanging from a Blackhawk. You know, I don't know if you call that just sadistic or terrorism. I mean, I don't, you know, it depends on what your definition is and stuff. Um, Well, I I equate it to the cartels in Mexico. You know that, right? So you'll find one dude who's Taliban, and two years later you catch him, he's al-Qaeda, and then three years later you catch him, he's ISIS. So, you know, I mean – you have to have a player's guide to sort this crap out.
0: Right. And, and, and when you talk about that, like the helicopter that is hanging someone from it, I equate that to what they do in Mexico in the cartels. I equate it to what they did in South America when Escobar was still around. It's a, it's a show of violence. It's a show of force to show you're either with us or against us. I, I mean, that that's the best way that I can describe it. And so that's why I think that it has turned in because Another problem that comes with that, with, with it being a criminal organization, is, like you said, that guy's a gajillionaire. Well, now they have all this munitions on the ground, and even before that, if he has all this money to give to his cause, it it makes for a difference. It makes for a sway because they are able to afford things that they might not have been able to afford before.
1: Yeah, I mean, it got they've always received like al Qaeda's has always received you know lots of funding from the from the persian gulf so you know it's not like they don't have money it's, It doesn't and you know they're not these complex attacks aren't you know that expensive you know they don't need a black hawk to pull them off you know right. they don't need all this other stuff they use very common simple stuff you know it, it it'll be interesting to see how they you know who knows, man, they may try to go up there and relieve some of the weakers, you know, the Muslim population in China. You know, it could happen, you know, that they're always looking for their oppressed brothers. Well, you can look no further than the Xinjiang province of China, which borders Afghanistan, and just roll up in there and relieve some of your, your you know, your brothers and uh, give the Chinese a, you know, a, a problem to deal with. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it could happen. You know, I don't know. They could destabilize other countries in the region. You don't know. I mean, it's a huge Muslim population. The question is, is who do they radicalize? And, you know, then what do they do once they're radicalized? That's what's the reality. If they just sit around and they just want to live and by Sharia law, that's great. But historically, that's not what happens. They want to impose that crap on other people. And then to do that, they they carry it abroad you know right blow up stuff all over Europe and you know Europe used to burn man last 10 or 15 years it's not been too bad in Europe but it's you know it's been it's kind of calmed a bit you know because they started rolling people up and using the the terrorist acts you know the the Patriot acts those kind of different types of things that each one of the European countries enacted to deal with it so I mean you know they got an issue You know, so we'll see. I mean, I just don't I don't think they're all going to sit in Afghanistan and be content. I just I don't buy that. Oh,
0: no, no, I completely agree with you on that. But when you talk about like destabilizing other nations, that in turn ends up being a bigger problem for us and for our allies, because we seem to have been the ones that try and stabilize it throughout history. Uh, And when you start to get that domino effect. Do you agree that it kind of stretches us too thin, puts us on too many fronts?
1: Not if it's China. China has 180 million Uyghurs, man. Right. I mean, I couldn't think of anything better than giving them an internal problem. Remember, most of their tech, most of their stuff is focused on keeping their population controlled. It's their biggest fear. Their biggest fear isn't going to war with us. It's a population that raises up one day and they get the whole, you know, Tenement Square thing all over again. That scares the heck out of them and stuff. I mean, give them an internal problem and let the Taliban bring it to them. And that would just be awesome. Same with Russia. Russia wants to control the trans region, sees it as their backyard. They're massive Muslim nations, you know? I think it's Turkmenistan, or is it Kazakhstan? Kazakhstan butts up right against the Xinjiang province and a lot of the Uyghurs flee into there and stuff. and. You know, and the Chinese will openly pursue them. You know, I mean, the MSS, which is like their CIA, their, or their FSB, you know, in the German version, they're pretty aggressive and stuff. So, you know, they'll go get them. And those countries are pretty weak and stuff, so they'll just kind of... So does do that pit, back.
0: At, at some point, does that pit China against Russia?
1: Uh, I... No, I think there, I mean, I, I wouldn't conflate the two. I, I think you're going to see if you could have rattle, you had Salafi jihadist radical folks out of the Taliban, the Haqqanis that are actually trying to support the Uyghurs in China. I, mean, I think the Russians would watch it burn just like we would watch it burn. We would put water on it. We'd be like, yeah, wow. Hmm. Sucks to be you. Same thing they did when we were in Afghanistan, right? Right. Watch us go through the same drama. So everybody gets their Vietnam at some point.
0: But, and, and you know, before we were over there uh, in Afghanistan, you had Russia over there for years. Um, and so when you look at that, when you look at the history of, I mean, this goes back, and and we've said it on here a bunch of times before, this goes back centuries. This This kind of... Uh, thinking this kind of um radicalism will never go away no matter who's there
1: you it goes agree back with thousands moment. of years say that again it goes back thousands of years right just you it know? it's pretty high right now you know because you have a lot of um young males who are basically not employable you know they do are not well educated um not a lot of work for dummies you know what i mean Find the same problem in the US. Every day you get machines that are becoming autonomous and able to do more and more things that humans used to be able to do, then you have more and more human beings that are basically unproductive. And when you're in a third world country that doesn't have a lot of manufacturing, like you know, a lot of the Middle East places, you have a lot of these young men, you know, in a male dominated society that are angry and pissed off at the world because you know they don't have any money they don't have any future and they just get pissed you know and so they join these militias and they want to take it out on the world and you know a lot of them want to get their jihad on and become martyrs and, and it is what it is right
0: right So I want to come back to Afghanistan kind of at the end of our conversation, but I want to move on to something that that you took part of, and I want to talk about just cause. And and if we can talk about the difference uh, just in sheer time frame of how fast and decisive and how quickly that it was processed through uh, with people giving up, the command giving up, there wasn't any way to split out. So if you can... I don't want to ask a lot of questions up front of it. Will you just kind of walk us through what was going on with you while all this was building, as it happened, and then as it ended?
1: Um, so I lived in Panama. I lived at a place called Fort Gulick. The Panamese renamed it Fort Espinar on the Atlantic side. Our, I was in 3rd Battalion, 7th Special Forces Group, and uh, the battalion was right there at Davis, Fort Davis, which is about, mm, about five or six miles down the road from Fort Espinar. You know, um, then a, not too far up the road from there was Fort Sherman, where the jungle training center was. And that was the Atlantic. And then everybody else was on the Pacific side, right? Um, but we had been there, you know, we were deploying in and out of El Salvador. We had guys going to Colombia and Bolivia and Peru. I had just come out of Peru, um, I think we got back on the 10th of December, and my company commander uh, major kevin higgins alerted us and you know i didn't even know what the hell was going on i'm like what do you mean man you know we just kind of showed up in our shorts and stuff you know we didn't know like what's going on and you gotta understand prior to all this we used to have what's called pot bangers you know panamines were lazy so they sent their maids out in the streets to bang pots as a protest and stuff so they used to call them pot bangers that would be like a the big protest and everybody would rattle their pots and stuff for a couple of hours and they'd all go inside and go back to doing what they were doing and stuff. And then we had the October coup that year. Um and that got a little sporty. But you know, we were really well prepared because they moved seventh infantry division brigade and to Panama. Um we had lots of JSOC assets there. We had an extra SF company from seventh group. We had alpha company first to the seventh. So we had four SF companies, which is a lot. Um, that's a lot of combat power for you know, a special forces organization. Um, we had helicopters, You know, we had a lot of lift, AC-130s. We had a lot of stuff in theater already because we knew that this thing was gonna go sideways. We just didn't know when. Um, And um, I remember they alerted the battalion. They started flying us over. Um, I want to say it was the 17th or 18th. And then we got told, you know, I went in. My first mission was to go with three other guys to a place called. um, I can't even remember it. But it was, a, it was a bunch of mortar positions by one of these four of us. We were going to suppress them with 203s and then use AC-130s to just wipe them out. Nowadays, if you did that, you know, post nine you'd probably send five guys, and it'd be over in an hour, hour and a half. They'd come back, you know, have a beer. You know what I mean? It would be no big deal. I mean, but um, we had to maneuver to the place and stuff, and when I got to the other side, because I'd been an 11th Cav guy, Major Higgins came up to me, and said, do you know how to set up an anti-armor ambush? And I said, yeah, I do. Of course we didn't have mines and rockets and a lot of the stuff that, you know, that would have been really handy to shoot at armored vehicles. They had, they had these Cadillac gauge, uh, armored cars with 20 millimeter cannons on them, which is, you know, you don't want that shooting at you. That's, that's not good. Um, that would hurt. And so, I was taken off the one mission literally right there and flipped over to this. And I took ooh, about half my team with me. We had a blocking position. Our our mission was to go into the Pakora Bridge and we were going to block it from the Battalion 2000 coming out of Cimarron, which is south of Tacumen Torres Airport. The Rangers were going to land first on Tacumen Jump as a clearing, you know, airfield clearing team would hit it. And then the 82nd was going to jump. They didn't need to jump, but the reason they jump—well, everybody will tell you they jumped so they could get their star. But the real reason was is you didn't want to be landing all those damn airplanes. And I mean, it would have been a—you know—it'd have just been a pain in the ass, right? So it's easier just to dump all those chuckleheads out of the airplane onto the tarmac and just you know sort it out on the ground. Because um, when you start landing those big airplanes, it just it gets really dicey at night, and people are shooting at you. It just gets really kind of weird. Um, and you didn't want one of them catching fire in the middle of the runway and shutting the airfield down, right? So you didn't want to do that. Um, we we got told that night that the president had made the decision we're going. We're like, damn. So this is it. And we were at Allbrook Air Force Base, which is um, in Panama City, right dead in the middle of it. And um, something happened that night outside of one of the gates. gunfights started. You to remember most of my battalion had been in combat already multiple times you know he'd seen a lot of combat you know so it wasn't really you know getting in a gunfight wasn't you know it didn't freak us out you know um, whereas a lot of people hadn't been in one ever you know right. since Vietnam was the last good one right Grenada I'm sorry Grenada and so um so we got, we were sitting in you know, these are nothing but aluminum buildings, man, you know, hangers, man, bullet just boom, right through it, you know, like a buckshot through a beer can. And, you know, rounds are just clicking through the building and, you know, we're sitting out there and they had three helicopters and the blades are turning. It's about an hour before we're supposed to leave. And, and it was just getting sporty as hell. And, um, you know, I'm looking at Major Higgins. I'm like, hey, man, we got to go. We got to go. This is, you know, I mean, because at some point down, one of these birds is going to catch fire, man, and somebody's going to be without a ride. Um, Or one of us is going to get hit. I mean, because literally just green tracers were going all over the damn place. And, and it just kept getting crazier and crazier. And finally, they said, okay, you guys can roll. And we could, you know, we were lifted and we were just got the hell out of there. And as we were leaving, you know, you could see the place look like, you know, just green tracers were going off all over the place. Somebody kicked the party off early. So uh, we had this real elaborate route that we were going to fly in, um, you know, to, to do – avoidance and stuff. So they didn't, you know, they wouldn't be able to track us where we were coming in because battalion 2000 was like their big heavy formation. Like if it got into the city, it could cause a lot of damage and stuff. And so once the firefight started, it was like, shit, you know, we just got to go straight in on this place. Cause you know, the game was up, right? Everybody knew everything was rolling. People were alerted. I remember, And we came over the bridge and I looked down, I'm thinking, shit, that's the bridge. Like, we're already here. And you can see trucks lined up, the convoy lined up getting getting ready to come on the bridge. And I'm thinking, shit, this is not good. We were supposed to land on the far side of the bridge. Everybody, three team, we're gonna run up and set up an anti-armor ambush and block them. I was gonna take my team, we were gonna run across the bridge and do the backside security and make sure nothing coming out of the city could come back out. Right. And we were small, you know, we're like five or six of us. Wasn't many of us and stuff. And so, um, I think Glenn Russo and a couple of the guys from one of the other teams brought over, I mean, like every machine gun they could get out of the arms room. I mean, it looked like every dude was carrying like, you know, we had machine guns everywhere because, you know, there just weren't many of us. Right. So we need to make a lot of noise. And, um, I remember we landed we had to land on the other side of the river, the side that I was actually gonna be on because the trucks were already on the other side. So that plan was over. We landed in this real tall cuna grass. I don't know if you've ever seen cuna grass, but it'll cut you like a razor, man. You just, you know, you ever seen pictures of guys in Vietnam, just their shirts and stuff were all just chopped up. Well, that's what it does to you. I think by the time we get to it, man, I was gonna to bleed to death, it felt like, you know, we just cut up and um, and we were carrying Constantina. We had it put on cardboard. We made these cardboard sleds and we're dragging this crap through the thing. And I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, man. Um, we got up on the big and berm and revetment there. And I remember Charlie Moritz and a bunch of the guys were just cranking laws and AT4s at just truck. I mean, you know, and the headlights just stayed on, man. They were just pounding this thing, man. And I don't know, man, it's one of those old army deuce and a half from World War II, man. But the damn lights just stayed on like pointing right at us you know we're just just dumping rockets into it and um it stayed on for probably 3 hours until the battery ran out i can't explain it so this day i can't explain it so um but i was on the far side setting everything I and mean, we stayed there for uh till the next day we killed a bunch of guys um trying to come across ac130s i think we emptied two The first time I'd ever seen them, you know, when they say they're Winchester, that means they're out of ammo. That's a bad thing. When the second one says, I'm Winchester, and you go, whoa, 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 excuse me, what? And they were like, we're going to leave and go back. No, no, somebody got to stay here and tell us, because, you know, they have all the sensors, and they could see things, and they could see all the movements. So one rolled back to go get more ammo at Howard Air Force Base, and then when they changed back up, but they basically provided us our security blanket that whole night. Um, the next day, you know, we were getting guys surrendering, you know, people show up in underwear, you know, no joke. They were, they just dumped their uniform, standing in their underwear in the middle of a field. You're like, come on. So, um, <laughs> we stayed out there until I want to say, it's probably three o'clock maybe later. I don't know. And I was the one facing the city and I knew that the 82nd airborne was going to be, coming out of the city and i'm thinking shit, man this is the most dangerous thing because they're going to kill us because they want to kill everything on earth and you know they just want to mow something down you know it was 80 deuce you know and, and i'm just like this is not good so i have my vs 17 panel and i'm flashing it to them and they had tanks up front you know the old sheridan tanks and uh they didn't kill us thank god um, <laughs> We got out of there. We took all the prisoners. I'll never forget I lost my hat. I had one of those uh, patrol caps from um, right outside the gate of Fort Benning. And, you know, they're hard to get. They were expensive back then. You know, nowadays it's not that expensive. But back then I was poor. I was cap, you know, brand new captain. Um, didn't have clothing and sales anywhere. So I, I had, like, relaxed grooming standards at the time because I just come from Peru. So I had a little mullet going on. You know, the whole Crockett and Tubbs thing. Yeah, there you go. And so, yeah, but Big Dumb Army had showed up down there, and there's this captain running around with long hair and no hat, and it didn't go real well. I, you know, there was no clothing and sales store to buy one because, you know, everything's closed because there was war going on. (laughs) Um, So we went back, we we went back to Albrook, right? And we stayed there. um, And then we got told that we're going to go and do the operation in David. And so the Panamanian Defense Forces had two kind of armies. They had one in the canal zone, and then they had one in David, which is up on the Costa Rican border, up in Boquete in that area. And that's the second largest formation of Panamanian Defense Force foot. Colonel Del Cid, the number two guy under Noriega commanded that. And I mean, the plan was pretty crazy. I think it was Charlie Cleveland came up, you know, now retired Lieutenant General Charlie Cleveland and those guys came up with the idea to call them. And so we flew in broad daylight. We had a fifty-three two air force pave Hawks that we did in flight refueling off the coast of Panama, broad ass daylight, which we'd never do this crap again. I mean, never. And we went to a place called Cherokee. And Colonel Higgins landed in one of the Pave Hawks. He was Major Higgins, and put a quarter in and called the Quartel and David and said, "You want to surrender?" In Spanish, of course. And they said, "Sure." And we said, "Okay, great. We'll drive over." <laughs> sure. They go, "We'll drive over." Literally, that's like, "Yeah." I mean, wasn't a lot of negotiating and stuff. And we, they said, no, no, don't drive because all the bridges are mined and everything. And so, you know, that's not a smart thing. So fly over. So the two Pave Hawks went to the Quartel in Davi, which is a big town, right? It's pretty big, you know, it's not small. And um, I took the 53. I have a picture of me in here sitting there. I have a bandana around my head because I didn't have a hat, you know, well, I wasn't you, trying to look like a
0: You can't say you have it and not show it.
1: Oh, it's on this, uh, it's on this, uh, you know, the electric thing, it spins around. Oh, okay. Okay. But but yeah, but it's me sitting and I got the headset on and I got a rocket between my legs, you know, an AT4 rocket. I'm holding, I got my arm actually holding on it like an armrest and stuff, you know, Um, but we all went into the airport and, um, we were going to. I had one hour to make sure that they could land and put the Rangers down there. Otherwise they were going to do an assault and it wasn't going to go well. We had to get out of there. Um, and I had, think I had the, uh, the engineer officer for the Ranger regiment. Yeah. And he was a major, if I remember correctly. And we busted ass. I mean, we found, a, uh, I shouldn't say this probably, we had a bucket loader on there and I had several gentlemen that had a, you know, mischievous childhoods who knew how to hot wire quickly. And, um, Get it going quickly i mean you know a couple of ncos like i got this you know and so um and uh, they got it and we filled in one hole they tried to crater one little hole we found a bunch of gravel i mean it was too easy it was almost like wasn't it, i mean wasn't as challenging as but we had one hour to do it which is not a lot of time right. there's a lot of unexploded ordnance they tried to blow up and stuff and so i tried to but the whole place was ringed by people we were like heroes trying to and they were the fences the chain link fits thousands probably thirty thousand people surrounded and they were cheering the americans coming in to relieve them it's crazy man it's crazy and i had one helicopter and i was trying to tell major higgins i was like hey man this is a freak show this is a freak show we, i mean this is out of control um, the rangers landed and then i had to get rangers into the quartel downtown i had not had no transportation so we got these you know the panamanian chiva buses you know with the big murals on the sides and they got the disco music and the, you know, the the music playing and, the, you know, the Jenga, it was crazy. So we threw Rangers in those, we threw them up on the, the luggage rack up top with machine guns and we drove, you know, the parts of the Ranger Battalion into the city to occupy stuff. And, you know, and then we just started working with them, you know, stolen vehicles you know we've had electric light company vehicles i had a mitsubishi dump i never driven one. big huge dump truck i wanted it i had me a big white one that's what i would drive around in. i was massive man it was like a five-ton dump it was huge that was my car and so i could fill the back of that dump truck with a squad of rangers and we could go anywhere in panama man but you know i would they say we need to go here i spoke spanish i had you know another spanish speaker with me We'd go there, we'd drop them, let them do what they do, and we'd get back in, we'd take off. You know, so we had a lot of, I mean, just a lot of good stuff. That, that's a, that, that to me is a mission. You know, I, I told you earlier about Sergeant Major Kenny McMullen. Again, guy's a legend, Sante Raider. I think he's had three, at least three tours in MACV V SOG in, in Vietnam. And I mean, he'd done about everything you could do in SF, Thailand. I mean, just everything. And, um, He goes to retired. I think the Army Times did a a front page article on him. I think they did two of them because he had so much crap he'd done. And they asked him what the most impressive um, mission he saw in his military career. And he said, David, you know, nobody was expecting that. Right. They expect him to say, you know, the Sante raid. Because I watched a handful of special ops dudes, you know, get in a couple helicopters fly all the way up the Panamanian coast, which is a long way by the way, in the helicopter. And take the surrender of twenty five hundred Panamanian Defense Force well armed Panamanian Defense Force folks. And there was never a shot fired. And that's the that's you know that's a great vignette on how special ops works and stuff. You know, we were able to take that um, place without any loss of life we were able to you know we found a lot of bad people you know we had i mean there was some crazy i mean i could tell you a guy who was a boxer in panama who'd been kicked out went to costa rica and formed his own militia and he seized the um the checkpoints up there and myself colonel higgins and one of the company warrants went up there drove up there to meet with these dudes. Like we didn't know them, you know, so we didn't know what the hell we were getting into. It could have been last trip we ever make. But these guys were professional, man. They all had blue jeans on. They all had the same color blue t-shirts. They had Motorola walkie talkies. Everybody was kitted the same way. So this guy was, a, you know, I think he was like a welterweight contender at one time in the world. But he, had, you know, he's pissed off. He's a Panamanian. He got run out of his own country, but he took over. He probably had like a hundred dudes, his own little militia. And they seized the checkpoint, arrested a lieutenant who um, had murdered—I uh, think it was an American—an um, American—and they put him in a, a U.S. postal bag. You know, his head one, body toward. Yeah, that dude, were him, fat dude too. We threw him in the back of the van. You know, the back of the carrier. He was a big old tub of lard. It, it wasn't going to go well for him. You know, he was going to end up at like Cueva Island you know, which is like, you know, Devil's Island. It's not good, man. You don't want to – it's not a place you want to hang out, you know. You don't want to spend your life in that place. Um, But, you know, just things like that that happened and stuff, you know, and I'm just really proud of, you know, the guys that, you know, that, that what they accomplished and stuff because they were, you know, they could have gone in there and shot the place up and killed a lot of people and stuff like this, but, you know, we didn't do that. So I don't know if that answers the Just Cause thing or not. No 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 that,
0: that, that's way more than, than uh than I even thought we were gonna get. That it, it tells a different side of it. Of course, uh the the military operations, major military operations took about five days. Uh, Noriega surrender uh, It was over
1: in 24 hours. Yeah Noriega surrendered that bullshit. Oh, yeah. I think it was over by within twenty-four hours it was over. No I mean, kidding. Was, yeah, I mean they were still fighting and there was still right. uncertainty because you couldn't figure out who's who in the zoo, right? Right. Um, I had a classmate who's, who ended up being the head of the Defense Force of Panama. His name is Gustavo Perez, graduated from the Citadel with me. But he was the XO of the Special Forces Company in Condor Island on the Pacific side. And he'd gone to school in America. His father had gone to fluent English and stuff. And he was, his group of special ops dudes, Panamanian special ops dudes were a lot of the problems. They were the guys shooting rockets at those big glass buildings and stuff. And, you know, I mean, just crazy stuff. And they kept us spinning, right? You know, kept us running around trying to find these chuckleheads. But, you know, again, he'd been well-trained. We trained him. The Israelis trained him. Hell, he trained with Qaddafi's people. And so, I mean, the guy had a lot of good training. And so they gave us headaches. He, They took him prisoner. And they took him over to Empire Range on the Pacific side. And they had him handcuffed, right? And uh, they were getting ready to fly him somewhere in the helicopter. And he takes his head and he slams it into the side of the helicopter and splits his head and starts to bleed. And there's TV cameras. And he turns around and he spins around into the camera in perfect English. And he screams, the Americans are torturing me. Look what they're doing to me. You know, just stuff like that. You know, well, you're some public affairs dude, man. you just lost your day. Now you gotta walk that back, right? You're gonna be there all day trying to explain to people what happened. And people are like, what no? Come on, they're torturing people. And so I mean, you know, just they were, you know, they 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 were doing a real good job of screwing with us and stuff. And ultimately it was fine, you know, they kicked them free, you know, everybody wanted to shake hands. So I it wasn't bad.
0: I'm really glad that you brought up a, a public affairs because I, I want to go into this because this, this was one of the most interesting things I thought about your career. So 1992, you're selected to become the Latin American Foreign Area Officer. Uh, mm-hmm. You got a master's degree in Latin American Studies from San Diego University, uh, and you served San Diego at US State,
1: U.S. San Diego State, San Diego University. Uh, excuse me. It's right me. across Bissy right Bay, but it's owned by the Catholic Diocese, uh, so it's a little I'm bit I'm sorry. Different. I went
0: to Oklahoma State. It's the same way with Oklahoma yeah. and Oklahoma State. I'm I'm so sorry. I I profusely apologize to you. So yeah. uh you're subsequently served at the U.S. Embassy. Um I, I really want to know at this time, this is nineteen ninety-two, so I'm just going to give a couple of the highlights around that. 89, end of the Cold War, diminishes Latin America's significance. Uh, Just Cause happens in 89. 91 is the collapse of the Soviet Union, creates problems in Cuba. Uh, 92, NAFTA. Uh, 93, U.S., Mexico, and Canada form the North American Free Trade Agreement. All these things are going on. And you're over there. So being a Latin American foreign area officer so soon after the cocaine crisis, Operation Just Cause, all the events of the world that are unfolding, did it make your job tougher or did you have to work a lot smarter?
1: Um, so in Bolivia... I won't do this. I'm, so, Kevin Higgins, if you're listening, I apologize up front. Um, so what people have to understand is what was going on in Latin America. So we killed Pablo in, what, 88? And we were breaking up the Medellin cartel, but then the Cali cartel started taking over. What people don't realize is that most of the cocaine was produced in, 70% of it was in Peru, and about 30% of it came out of Bolivia, out of Chimera, in the you know, to Chapari Valley. So, and everything else came out of the Alto Wayaga and, the, and, the, and the Rio Ini area in Peru. And what they would do is they would put it into paste. They would fly it all in planes to Colombia. They would process it into cocaine as we know it. And then they would put it on the routes into the U.S. In those days, the routes went... To you know, to the cocaine cowboys, you know, and it went through into the Caribbean, right? When going up to Mexico, like it is now, it would go into the Caribbean, and then they would, you know, crock it in tubs, and all the boys would, you know, be chasing it from there. Um, what happened was, is that Peru and Bolivia and everybody started shooting down the planes flying out. Right? They were doing like a hundred a week. Yeah, people don't know that. They were smoking planes, right? And so in Peru and Bolivia, they could just drop them as is. In Colombia, the rules were different, and they didn't shoot down the planes. I think the reason they didn't was because at that point in time, they were over a lot of villages, you know, following roads. And if they dropped the planes, probably I'd probably hit. them. But, but in Colombia, they could destroy them on the airfield and stuff. And so what happens was is that the Colombians said screw it, they're gonna start growing their own coke. And they started putting more coke fields into Colombia. And that's when they started using the ELN and the and the and the FARC, And they were using all these remote places. They were not just processing coke anymore but they were growing Coke because they didn't want to have to fly it stuff and have to take off. So this was a big transition that was going on and stuff. So as in the embassy, I mean, in those days, Bolivian embassy was massive. You know, it had one of the largest aid programs, Well, most people don't know that there's a Peace Corps training center there. I think it's still there. It's one of the biggest in the, there is, um, so there's just like it's a big operation in La Paz, La Paz is a dump if you've ever been there. It's like one of the poorest countries south of the Rio Grande. It's like I st- my wife and I want to go back there. Cause we want to see where we lived and just, you know, see how much it's changed, but it's on my bucket list. Um, but, you know, I mean, it was great. Uh, I had a great time there. I learned a lot. Uh, I, I worked half the guys were with the agency. The other half are with DEA and, and they were phenomenal, man. They were, just a lot of fun you know we did great operations complete autonomy I was a I was a very senior SF captain at the time um, you know back in those days you were a captain for like a hundred years because um, you know the promotions were slow I think I sat on the majors list for two years after it came up they tell you you're gonna get promoted and two years later you actually get promoted um, so how many years yeah, do you have in blast. right now when I got out? Oh, no, at no, that no. time.
0: Yeah, at that time, how many years you got in?
1: Oh, I okay, came out eighty-four. Nine and a half, ten. Okay. Nine and a half. Yeah, ten. No, ten by the time I by nineteen ninety-four it was ten years. Okay. Um Yep. And so good times. I enjoyed you know, I enjoyed being in the mill group. I did not want to go back to some you know, BS staff job in the United States. I wanted to stay down. I wanted to stay deployed. I wanted to stay overseas, you know. Um, spent most of my career overseas. That's where I want to do it. I always, you know, I'm an American. I could always go home, but um, that's where you're gonna, the farther away you are from the flagpole, the more autonomy you have. The more autonomy you have, the your greater the ability to grow and do stuff. You know, you're not micromanaged as much and you can just do a lot of cool stuff, so. I was in a forward deployed battalion in Panama. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Roy Trumbull was our battalion commander, one of the greatest leaders I've ever worked for in my life. It's funny. He told me when I came I came in, when I got selected as a family, he goes, you piece of shit. I cannot believe you're doing this. You're, 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 I said, sir, back in those days, you could do both, right? SF and then when you, I was like, sir, I wanna stay in Latin America. I don't, you know, I don't, I can go back to land the big PX anytime my wife and I, we like it, we wanna stay down here. This is what we, we dig it, right? This is us. We're cool. And um, he ended up being a foreign area officer and being the mill group commander in Peru. And I went and saw him in Peru and he goes, Shut up. Don't say it. Don't say it. Don't say it. He's a colonel dude. But I mean, I love him. He commanded School of the Americas. I mean, he's just one of the greatest class acts, you know, uh, I've ever been around. You know, I mean, I, I think he, I can't say enough great things about uh, Roy Trumbull. Uh, he just was a phenomenal leader, you know. Um, and I was just blessed to serve under that man. Uh, he still lives in Columbus, Georgia, um, but he's just one hell of a human being.
0: With with all this forward deployable, I mean, you talked about it in Germany. Uh, you're in Panama on a Ford deployable. You're you're almost completely autonomous, working for the embassy. All these different things. You have to have a strong family backing you up. With with everything that you're doing, you've got to have like a strong wife and everything backing you up. Um,
1: yeah, my wife's a saint. That was the first duty assignment we had was in Paz Bolivia. And she was an Air Force brat out of half her family's from South Carolina, the other half's from Kansas. And, but she loved it. Um, she ended up getting a job working for um, Dan Johnson, who was a retired Air Force lieutenant colonel, was the admin officer, the number three guy in the embassy. Phenomenal human being, unbelievable. You could hit that man with a brick, and you would never ruffle his feathers. He would never get flustered. I mean, never. We, had, I mean, we had President uh, or Vice President um, Gore come and visit. We had every all these dignitaries come, and Dan Johnson was as cool as the other side of the pillow. He never freaked. He never, you know, he never got everybody spun up. Everybody would get all excited, and he would just chill everybody out. I mean, so she worked with him. She got her TS clearance while we were there because you know he couldn't work for the man without having a top secret clearance. So my wife and I had both had top secret clearances, um, and we loved it. It was a great time, man. I mean, she saw every major cable, so I knew everything that was going on between the ambassador. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's 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 a it's a you know it's a fishbowl as it is, but I got to see all the real deal deal. You know, like this is what's really going on. Um, and then I did all the work for the you know the opposite side of the house, so. But it was a lot of fun, man. I mean, it was a we just, you know, we had a huge operation there. We had, I think we had 21 UH-1 helicopters, we had four C-130s, we had a couple squadrons of um boat guys doing and then we had the the UMAPAR, which are a couple of battalions of counter narcotics guys, we had bases all over the place. We had training. I mean, it was great. DEA had, you know, uh strike elements. We had just close reconnaissance. Uh I mean, it was a lot. I mean, I was the ops officer. It was, it was a blast, man. I don't lie to you, man. It's like I had more toys and stuff than I had ever dreamed of, man. It was, you could do a lot of cool ops.
0: Well, with that, I want to talk about the extremist force um, that you were uh, a commander of and it focused on anti-terrorism, correct? Yeah. Now uh, recently they have, and, 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 about as close as I could get in information was the 2020 where, um, they were getting rid of these teams. Yeah, they did. Um, yeah. Um, first I want you to talk about them, but then I want to talk about when they got rid of them and they're talking to these guys, uh, a CRF operator. And he says the CRF hasn't been gainfully employed since the end of 2011 and other than that, the National Mission Force, Joint Special Operations Command, can get there just as fast. That's why all the other ones are on the chopping block. So I want to talk about what you did and why they would got rid of them, because I would think now more than ever they would need those small units to move all around the globe quickly.
1: Yeah, You know, the problem with the whole thing was missions are tied to resources and stuff. And So this unit, the unit that I had was Charlie 110, which was derived out of Berlin right it came from a unit in Berlin that was a covered unit and it's they moved all that shit out of Berlin and they said you're going to go to Stuttgart uh, and you're going to fall in there and we're going to reconstitute this capability in Stuttgart under the first battalion folks instead of having it in a detachment in Berlin um those guys were you know, there was a there's a mission there for the whole counterterrorism piece. It's an in extremist, And it's basically to hold a fort uh, until you know, the JSOC components can arrive. That's basically what it was. Um, but it got used for so much more. Right. So to say it wasn't gainfully is bullshit. I mean, if you look at what happens in Iraq, you know, they took it to Iraq because they needed it, you know, JSOC needed that capability. Why? Because you're doing a lot of the over-horizon stuff. During Brindisi in Bosnia, we kept half the company and two SEAL platoons in Brindisi, Italy, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we did that for, what, three or four years. Uh, A fair portion of the company was deployed to Turkey when we had uh, the uh, Incirlik mission because we had a thing called the Zaku house. And the Zaku house was in in Kurdistan, and it was 20 some guys in a place literally in the middle of Iraq, and they would fly from Inserlik into Zaku House and resupply those guys, and they were a quick reaction force and for all those other things. Um, did tons of operations down in Africa. You know, in those days we mainly focused on Africa. The, the real deal was is it was created in the 80s when you had terrorism, you had the biter mine off, the Red Brigade, all this crap, right? And people kind of went away from the whole barricade situation. You know, you could submit the same thing that, the, you know, that the national force didn't do shit either. You know, what we, what we built those folks for at that time, they weren't really using them. But those skills that they have are very unique and they can be used in tons of other things. And so that's the reality of it. Um, you know, whether they needed it or not, you know, I, I don't, I've been out for seven years, so it's kind of hard for me to have an opinion on whether or not they're needed or not. You know, I, I'm not in a position to, you know, to say, I know with Afghanistan, now that they're going to be doing over the horizon stuff, there'll be a point in time if they're doing it for real and they're pre-positioning assets in theater that can react, you know, shorter than, you know, the flight from the U S and they've got the capabilities over that they need over there. Um, then those guys are going to get tired real quick. For, you're going to, you're going to keep a that lot are of power tied up.
0: I just want to cut you off for a second. Uh, for people that are listening, can you explain over the horizon missions?
1: Yeah. Um, they're hard. Uh, it's because you don't have any basing rights and stuff. And so, you look at things like just cause, we were all in Panama, it's kind of easy, right? We had multiple right. places. We, you know, you had forward support bases, you could build up your stuff, you had everything you needed when you needed it and stuff. Um, if you if you if you look at Bosnia, for example, we couldn't do that, right? So, you know, when we went into Bosnia, we were replacing the UN forces. Not many people remember that, right? It was the UMPRA 4. And they were a disaster. Remember people were up there, you know, living in their foxholes. It was just unsanitary. It was like World War 1 crap, right? And we took all the US special operations. We went in there and we partnered with all the units. And when NATO when NATO came in to relieve the UN, we were the ones that brought the conventional forces up to do the relief in place. It was the special ops guys. It was a mess, man. It was just we could be here all night talking about that. The UN is just back in those days, you had, you know, Moroccan units without any cold weather gear on a frozen mountain, just all huddled around a fire. You know, you could just walk up and shoot every one of them. They wouldn't even notice, you know, they were so they were freezing to death. Half of them were starving, didn't have water, frozen, you know, they just weren't doing basic sanitary stuff, just crapping all over the place, just completely unsa You just, lack of discipline in a military organization they just didn't have it they didn't have the professionalism to do it um, they were just trying to survive um but we kept packages and stuff to do certain types of missions you didn't want to put them in theater because you've got to guard them you, you know just a lot you can also get airfield watchers and things like that and so sometimes your proximity can hurt you and stuff but over the horizon missions can you do them yeah um Desert One was an over-horizon mission. How'd that work out? (laughs) Not too well. So, I mean, you're asking, you know, if you have to have vertical lift capability, you know, um, you have the CV-22 now that you didn't have before. The problem with the CV-22 is if you're flying in places like Afghanistan and you get up in the Hindu Kush, it doesn't, it can't, it, it doesn't have the, you know, the horsepower The engines aren't strong enough, so it can't carry a lot, you know, a a big load. It's it's small. The 47s are the only thing that you can use that we have in the inventory. Um, The Marines have the 53s, and those those are pretty good, but they're not special ops. So, you know, you could end up like we did at Desert One. You have, you know, non-special ops pilots trying to do a special ops mission, and it can end up badly. Um, So you try to, you know, not to do that, but if you have to have vertical lift, then, you know, you've got to fly long, long distances. You've got to do multiple tankers, um, you know, docks on those things, you know, in-flight refueling. Um, You've got to have all kinds of capability posture to do those things. Um, When we were in Iraq and Afghanistan, we had forward support bases in and out of the country that allowed us to do phenomenal things and stuff. And and, you know, when you start getting involved in the, you know, over the horizon, I just think it's a huge stretch. Um, the risks go up through the roof, you know. I mean, like if we, I was talking to somebody tonight, Rick Lamb, Sorry, Major Rick Lamb works for me. He's a, a veteran of Mogadishu, got shot in the head, so I got a bullet in his head from Mogadishu. And, um, and, you know, I asked him tonight, I said, hey, what, you know, what do you, could you imagine doing Mogadishu if we had to fly out of Kenya? And he goes, no, it would have been a, would have been a failure they were flying out of the airfield moog down the beach to the thing some of the assets were in kenya you know a lot of the some of the big air flames were in kenya but the, the strike force package was at the airfield and stuff and had that had to you know to commute to work um, the farther the commute the worse it gets the more danger the more risk goes up the cost is phenomenal that's one of the things we're doing right now as the foundation is we're arguing with we're 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 advocating to Congress that they consider taking the three billion dollars that was earmarked for uh, the Afghan forces and put that aside for the special ops and the intelligence forces and the Air Force and the Navy who are all going to have to provide support packages to whatever the hell it is we're doing. And that's not a small number, man. It's a big, expensive number, um, it's three to make one. So, you know, whatever packages you have sitting on the ground, there's two other pa- complete packages just like that back at home station. One is resting and the other one's training, you know, and it's just, it's a grind, man. It will wear equipment and people out.
0: And I guess we can kind of finish up before, cause I want to get into the foundation and everything, but before we do, let's kind of wrap this up on Afghanistan. Cause I think it's a good point. So, uh, a lot of people are saying that, that the way we left, there was a lot better ways. I think you would agree with that. There's a lot better ways that we could have done it. Um, but I, I want to get first, just your thoughts on it, how, how it ended up after 20 years, what you think maybe we could have done better, what we did good. And then, you know, what it looks like for the future.
1: Yeah. Um, so I look at the facts, right? Um, Afghanistan was taken down with about 200 special ops guys and air power. And then we made a decision and we were partnered with the Afghan forces. Right. And then we made a decision to bring in the conventional force, the 18th Airborne Corps, task force 180. Why? as soon as we did that, we made the fight our fight, you know, um, it then became a holding war. For 1003, Victor, the invasion of Iraq, right? It was the forgotten war, the joke. In 2010, we shifted out of Balad, Iraq, into Bagram because we were closing down Iraq, right? Because the Iraq, the, the Iranians were telling the Iraqis to get us out of there, and we were allowing it, and they were using the Status of Forces Agreement, you know, saying we won't sign it if you. Um, If you don't do that, we could have just said, screw you, we're not doing it. And you're not touching us. Um, We could have been a little bit more heavy-handed because we knew the Iranians were behind it, but we didn't do that. Um, Both in Iraq and Afghanistan, we spent billions of dollars, mega billions of dollars creating conventional forces that both literally evaporated within five days. Both. Whatever model we were following should be crushed into fine powder and never used again, because that was a horrible model. If you look at F- Iraq, the counter service, CTS, which is all their special ops police and military units, they're the ones that saved that country. When we all decided to go back in, it was those guys, the golden division all those people they had treated some of those special op, Iraqi special ops battalions down to 30% of their people. They were using them as conventional forces because the conventional forces, which we, the taxpayers of America, spent tons of money on, just basically cut and run. They were never in the fight. You know, i never forget the ISIS flag on the back of an M1 tank driving around. I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, one, why would we give them an M1 tank? They can't even clean a damn machine gun, but we go give them an M1 tank, which is one of the hardest things on earth to maintain besides a helicopter. Just stupid crap like that. Just ignorant, ignorant stuff. You know, then you look at Afghanistan, the "Well, thing. It was a tribal organization. We were going to create these canned acts and we were going to use all this. You know, everybody was studying insurgencies. I just ask you, where are all the people that commanded ISAF and commanded SITCOM today? because they made thousands of dollars on book deals and speaking engagements. Are they accountable? Are they, because they were architects of this disaster. Are any of them accountable? I mean, I'm just asking. If this was a business or an NFL franchise, we'd be firing people's asses right now.
0: I think that's the problem with a lot of that a lot of people are having right now. And then you have the other day where the Marine Lieutenant Colonel comes out, uh, asks for, um, who's responsible and wants people to be held accountable. And they pretty much shit can him. He's not gone, but they pretty much shit can him out of the
1: job. He resigned. He's done. He'll be out in 90 days.
0: And so you, I mean, 17 years and gone from, and it was from, a conscious
1: decision, you know, it was, um, uh, he's you know, a gusty he- guy man i mean you know i gotta tell you you know i would like to think i would be that strong if i was there you know but he uh yeah he he, he was passionate about it you know um well i mean he, we'll see i mean he i don't know if ever in his life he'll regret it or not you know i don't know um but he's you know he's no dummy you know i, I just think that there's no accountability for any of these failures so and, who do not understand. accountable? Well, it's, everything's a function of leadership. Okay. So you just look. I mean, you can break out the pie chart and figure out everybody that helped architect that policy. <laughs> a lot of them are great people that I know personally, I don't care though. If you're in charge, you're in charge. And, you know, they were all in charge. And over 20 years, we made a crappy product. And... They're accountable. Even if they only had two years or three years to touch the product, it doesn't matter. They did it and we should hold them accountable.
0: So how do we begin to do that then? How do we hold them accountable when no one is stepping forward and saying part of this shit
1: pie that we're eating is my fault? Yeah. That tells you a lot about these people, you know, even the formers. I mean, nothing personal, but these guys got to step up, you know, David Petraeus of the world, he was a CENTCOM and ISAF commander twice. I mean, come on, man. You you have a huge hand in what happened here. You're a huge architect in what happened. You could sit there and tell me, oh, it was this and that. I don't give a crap, man. You know, you drove the boat. You obviously didn't drive it in the right direction. Because there's not been any major rudder changes in that place in 20 years. I remember sitting there in 2010 thinking this is a shit show. I mean, and so it's, you know, it's, Again, though, you just do what you can at your level of stuff. Um, at the end of the at the end of the Vietnam War, the army had the blue ribbon panel. What most people don't know is prior to 9-11, the army had a second blue ribbon panel going on at Fort Leavenworth. And I was a part of it. I was watching it. I was, I was on the third floor of Eisenhower Hall. And because the, the army was hemorrhaging. People were disillusioned with their leadership. They wrote so many things. General Steele was the Lieutenant General Steele was the commander of Fort Leavenworth at the time. And, 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 and the, they would go around and poll. They had uh, three different groups. One was looking at NCOs, warrant officers and officers. And I mean, they were naming names. It was brutal, man. I mean, it was brutal. The contempt and hatred they had for the senior leaders, mainly the flag officers in the military because it was micromanagement and, everything. and then of course you know 9 11 happened the towers came down we went to war and everybody forgot about it i'm telling you right now i'll bet you a month's pay that all the things that were an issue then will come back to be the same thing same thing post vietnam they had the same thing they had a big blue room panel and basically exposed all the ugliness you know i don't think any of these field marshals but you know people like westmoreland look at the pentagon papers for christ's sakes with ehrlichman i mean come on man i mean these guys exposed military corruption in my opinion these guys were complicit falsely reporting doing all this crap you know just not you know in my opinion not ethical you know Um, i saw nobody resign over afghanistan nobody you know i think the last person that that resigned was John Singlob when he was the eighth army commander in Korea and president Jimmy Carter said he was going to pull everybody out of Korea and General Singlob resigned, the OSS guy in Europe and in Asia during the Korean conflict. They made him the CIA. He was a a general colonel. They made him the CIA station chief in Seoul because they had just formed the CIA. They didn't have their shit together. Um, But, he was, a, I think, I'm pretty sure Singlaub was a lieutenant general. And he he, um, he resigned, and he didn't go on TV, and he, didn't, you know, he didn't, you know, talk trash about Carter and say he's a loser or anything like that. Not that I remember. How, um, that was my junior year in high school, but he resigned and just said, "I'm out," um, and that brought enough attention to the problem where Carter didn't pull U.S. forces out of Korea. I didn't see any of that. Did you? no but okay so 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 let's you know even a lot of people had issues with president trump and they didn't do it so let me give you
0: let me give you a scenario so we start holding people accountable one how do we hold them accountable and then when we do hold them accountable what do we do
1: with them fire look at general marshall he was like the Chairman during World War II, that guy fired more generals. Look at Secretary Gates; he fired nine. They were either service secretaries or four-star generals. I want to say he fired two service secretaries and and seven four. I mean, he fired tons of them, man.
0: But but didn't
1: even blink, even, man. But when is the last time someone's been fired for incompetence?
0: But even if we fire them, they just walk away with their retirement. They just go but, away. I mean, they write a book. They become
1: yeah, They become speeches, a talking you know, head on Fox. Yeah, you can do criminal stuff. You can give secrets to people and go teach at Columbia. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah, you can get away with a lot if you're, you know. The, the, the issue is, is I'm more concerned about changing the culture than being punitive. You know, it sends a signal to the force. I'm more concerned about the culture of the force. Send a signal saying, hey, you know, the part of your leadership is having the moral courage to do the hard right. Everything is not worth resigning over either. Like, you know, I know a lot of young people say, you should resign. I'm like, well, okay, that, no, not for that. For Afghanistan, that's a resign thing.
0: Okay. So that's let me resigned. ask you, bringing it back to you, what was it that finally told you in your head, it's time to go?
1: From the middle, i am mrd man. I mean, I did as long as they would let me. I work for Admiral Bill McRaven. He's my mentor and my friend. Um, I agreed to do three years with him in Tampa. I used to make jokes. I was going to get off plane. I'd just done five years in Belgium and three in Germany before that, multinational headquarters. And doing multinational stuff, it ages you in dog years. I mean, it just wears you out, crushing your soul. Cause it's hard, man. It's just really, really, really hard. I mean, it's not easy. You know, the Americans hate it because we just like to do our thing and and often you can't just do your thing. You gotta do it with your partners and, and it sucks. It's painful. It's better in the end, but you gotta do it. You know, you just have to do it. And so I How's did that level pretty high. I was a chief of, it's really high um, chief of staff for five years, man. Why I'm not an alcoholic. I have no idea. I probably <laughs> am. So, um, but I love the people I loved everything, but it is, you know, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of stress. Right. And I joked with Adam McRaven, you know, I told him, I said, I'm getting off the plane in Tampa. I'm going to have in processing paperwork in one hand and retirement paperwork in the other. And don't ask me to do a lot." Well, of course he says, Hey, I want to do this special thing. I want you to be a part of it. And like a jackass, I said, okay. Cause I can't really turn him down. I've never turned him down on anything. Um, all I asked him to do is it can't be pedestrian. You know, it's got to be something that's, you know, worthy. Um, and he, you know, he doesn't, if you've never met the man, he doesn't, you know, he's not, he's not playing for a tie. Let's just put it like that. And so, um, yeah, we were going to change the way Special Ops operated for, and we we got a lot of good things done in three years. And so I MRD'd and mandatory retirement date 2014, and, and I left. When you leave –
0: we talk about this foundation that you've made, Global SOF Foundation. Now, looking through your numbers, holy shit, Stu, there's a lot of stuff going on here. Like I was looking through your numbers. You have 2,400 plus individual
1: members, and 50% of those are active uh, duty. 32, we're over 32 now. Yeah, about 58% are active duty. I think it's probably getting closer into the 60s. They ebb and flow, you know. So, I have 85 corporate partners.
0: How many are you saying now? 104. Damn. 60 nations.
1: What are we up to 90? No, 60. It's just, I think it's 60, 61, somewhere in there. Okay. You know, somewhere. it It's hovered. You know, I mean, there's not that many. A lot of the countries just don't have special ops. You know, Luxembourg's not going to have. I, we may have somebody in there from Luxembourg. I don't know. I have to go look. But... <clears throat> Well,
0: let me let me talk about just what it says. The Global SOF Foundation is a nonprofit organization. It's forging this good guy network among the world's special operations forces. Uh, it brings together military, government, industry and intellectual leaders from around the world for the purpose of advancing the capabilities and efficacy of SOF. Mm-hmm. Um I want you to break it down, though, what you guys really do, because there's a lot more to that. I want to talk about. Um, are you still with Spirit of America? Because that was the last that I read that you were. I was.
1: A, I'm a. I'm, a, I'm a advisory council. Driver, okay. So um, I I, I love I, what they're doing. I think they're phenomenal. I mean, if I had a billion dollars, I'd give them a billion dollars. Uh, they're just you know they're doing God's work. Basically, it's a good guy NGO. You know, you're right. Supports. Good guy, people and stuff. So um, they've done. I mean, they have some of the most phenomenal vignettes and stuff. And I just think the world of them. They're just, you know, they're great people doing great things. And most people never know anything about them, and it's kind of sad because they're well, not. Yeah, doing if I can no go their numbers
0: real quick, um, just because you're talking about them so highly, uh, fourteen hundred and thirty-three projects going on in ninety countries, uh, sixteen point seven thousand donors. 38 million total in donations. I mean, that's unbelievable. And for you to be a part of it along with your organization. Now I want you to break down your organization because I said a mouthful of it. I want you to kind of break it down though, and say what you guys actually do.
1: Kind of give you a little bit of history first. So I didn't even know what a 501 C three was. Okay. I had to go look it up. Um, In 2013, while I was on active duty, the U.S. Geospatial Intelligence Foundation was hosting an event called GEOINT in Tampa, Florida. And a guy by the name of Keith Mossbach, who's the president and CEO at the time, shows up at my office and says, hey, we met with Adam McRaven. He says, you're supposed to help us. I'm like, great. Who are you? What am I supposed to help you with? Um, we talked a little bit about the event they were going to host in Tampa. I looked at the agenda. They weren't getting any support from SOCOM or CENTCOM. And I just said, Hey, can I how much can I how much freedom do I have to change stuff? And they said, Well, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't like the agenda. I think it's a bunch of nerds talking to nerds. And what I think we need to do is I think your business partners would be more excited to have operational people come in and talk about how they use geospatial capabilities in their organizations and not just what they're supposed to do, but how they actually use them and some of the, you know, how do they cheat and do things with it? And they go, yeah, that's great. And I said, and we need to bring in international, like everybody, not just, you know, a bunch of gringos here and there. So we brought in General Votel was the JSOC commander at the time. Adam McCraven spoke. I brought in international panels. We got a whole, it, it, we operationalize their agenda. So industry partners, could actually hear what the units and the commands were doing with their stuff. Throughout the entire process, Keith Mossbach kept asking me why special operations never had a professional association. You know, I was working 15 hours a day, six days a week. I wasn't looking for a hobby. I hadn't really thought about it. I was getting close. I was about nine months out from retirement, from my mandatory retirement date. A um, lot of big industry folks were were talking to me um, with some pretty good deals. You know, I'd never seen an offer sheet. I had one, some of the numbers were that they were mumbling were pretty high and and they were good companies and everything, but it just, you know, I wanted to keep serving. Um, And so Keith Mossbach one day asked me, why don't you form a nonprofit for special ops? Why don't you get off your ass and do this? And I was like, dude, I have no idea what I'm doing. He goes, I'll help you. Will, I'll give you my staff. We will help you do this. And they did. He gave me his bylaws. I looked at a couple of the bylaws. I did word replace. <laughs> uh, my COO is Megan Keeler-Pettigrew. And so my COO is Megan Keeler-Pettigrew. It's like Jerry Maguire. You know, one day we just grabbed our goldfish and we left, man, we took off. and and And, you know, I said, hey, what do you think about this? And she says, I think it's awesome. Uh, Dr. Keenan Yoho is our vice president and he's like yeah I said y'all want to do this and they said yeah let's do it Um, and again we didn't know what the hell we were doing man I won't lie to you Um, but we're blessed we have some partners and stuff we have founding partners that wrote hundred thousand dollar checks the first year in the year of sequestration I had a crappy Kinko's copy brochure and I had no past performance man and so for these companies that are our corporate partner, our founding partners, to write a check like that in the year of sequestration with no past performance, that's an emotional decision and not a business decision.
0: But, but can I stop you there for a minute? I mean, with no past performance, I mean, your your resume kind of speaks for itself.
1: It was more the idea than me, you know? I mean, you know, yeah, I guess. But, but the reality was is, Everybody that saw it, the first time Adam McCraven saw it looked at me, damn, this looks pretty good. It's like one of the smarter things you've ever come up with, <laughs> you know? And, and I didn't want to tell him, hey, man, I didn't really know anything about it. Keith Mosbach is one of saying, you ought to get off your butt and do something. So it kind of just arrived at this, you know, and a group of us just slowly percolated this thing up. And we grew as Megan and I for first three and a half years, just two of us. And we recruited, I want to say over 50 some partners and, by ourselves, we did everything, it was long hours. I mean, we worked hard. Um, We had a lot of great volunteers. So the other thing is about this community is, this is one of the most giving communities. You know, if you could have seen them over the last seven days on a, uh, the special ops community brought more people out of Afghanistan than you could ever dream of. There are all these nonprofits, these people have done, I've never been more proud of them in my life. Nobody asked for anything. Everybody's given way together. I think when somebody goes back and does the forensics on what this community accomplished by getting people out of Afghanistan, I mean, 60 Minutes can make miniseries of it. Netflix, I'm not joking, Netflix will make movies. There's going to be tons of screenplays come out of this. Some of the greatest things you'll ever see came out of this thing. So um, as horrible as it is, the human spirit was awesome, and I'm really proud of my community for everything it did. But, you know, you fast forward to where the foundation is now, man, we're we're in our eighth year. Um, in 2020, we were designated by the Department of Defense as one of the National Military Associations. So we're there's like 11 of us total now. So we're like, you know, up there, you know. Um, and so it's good. You know, um, we're a little bit different than everybody because we are global. So we have a lot of global partners out there and a lot of global activities and stuff that we do. But we're just trying to. Um, Form and maintain a good guy network. You know, the special ops community is always the first in. It's generally the last out of every conflict in the world. That's what they're built for. So, you know, everybody feels sorry for them. Don't feel sorry for them. That's what they want. You know, that's what they signed up to do. So don't act like you're, you know, doing them wrong. That's what they do. They want that. You know, that's why they left the conventional force. They wanted to do more. They wanted greater risk. They wanted greater responsibility for those types of things. Um, We just convene the community with events and we advocate for it. You know, like I said, we just sent a letter to Congress. I don't know if it'll do any good or not, you know, but um, we just need, you know, we, we try to educate them so they think about things for the community. You know, we try to support SOCOM and all the other commands. You know, we've worked with I've worked with the Ukrainians, the, you know, multiple countries in Europe. I'm starting to work with countries in Asia on help forming joint special operations headquarters, you know, trying to make them more compatible. So when they fall in in a battle zone, like if you could have seen the Kabul airport, it looked like the Special Ops Olympics, man. Everybody was there. But, you know, you get understand now. So when I started, the new, we started the NATO South Headquarters with Adam Craven, They didn't have all that capability and compatibility. People's radios didn't work. We didn't know everybody. We didn't have all that stuff. And you, you fast forward, here we are 14 years later, and we have all of that. And one of the things we're trying, and that's because a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of energy went in by thousands and thousands of people to make that happen, right? That doesn't happen by accident. It happens by design and hard work and stuff. Um, our goal is to do the same thing for Asia as what we've done for Europe. And the Europeans will be there to help do this, right? We carry our, you know, we stick together, we'll stay together. So when we roll into Asia, you'll see a lot of, you know, tons of Europeans and, and, and countries from Latin America helping out. Like Chile, and, you know, they'll be very involved in, you know, helping these nations get their special ops uh, commands stood up and, you know, making them more capable and more compatible, and more interoperable.
0: When, when you talked about uh, all of these coming together, people kind of paying it forward once it's done in Europe, then it travels to Asia, uh, you almost have a, a global team that can, and I know you already said global, but what I mean by that is special ops being able to hit the ground in, in multiple, multiple countries, almost any country now, and have people on the ground to get things rolling uh that it's got to help out the community in leaps and bounds by being able to just pick a country hit the ground and already have people on the ground waiting
1: yeah you know everybody asks me all the time why do you run all these events and stuff and you know the reality is is you can't just meet somebody once a year and expect to maintain or have a relationship it just right. doesn't work like that right? right it's all we call it random acts of touching or episodic events you just can't do that so we have a series of events scattered throughout the years Um, the the intent is to convene the community. Some of them are land-based, some of them are air-based, some of them are maritime. But you know, these are what we're trying to do. We want people to to know each other when their first name is major and captain and commander and lieutenant commander and stuff like that. Because when their first name is general or major general, lieutenant general, they have a relationship. This gets back to what I told you with Adam McCraven, you can't surge trust. If I have a personal relationship with these people, I mean, I mean, I've done things that you're not supposed to do, but in a war zone, but we said, screw it, it's a war. And you're my friend and I'm gonna do what I can to help you because we're all on the same team and, you know, help somebody out. And that's the kind of level of of relationship you have to have. And that's kind of what the community, you know, the foundation does is we bring these people together um, and we try to give them an opportunity to build stronger and better relationships.
0: I want to talk about some of those meetings when you get together. Now, um, I pulled up a couple of your symposiums that are coming up. Uh, The first one is in Europe. Some of your proposed topics of discussion um, are not nerds talking to nerds. I mean, it's crazy stuff that you guys are talking about. Senior leadership keynotes, collective defenses in Eastern Europe, warfare trends, developments, and forecasts, telemedical support, human risk and performance artificial intelligence, regional intelligence sharing, financial support and procurement, SOF recruitment and retention. Uh, it's, it's all those things that I, I think that you used to start this foundation. I, I mean, all of those topics seem like things that you had to learn to get this going off the ground. Now, the interesting was the one in the United States where you have cryptocurrency seminars, life transition seminars, That's shit that people don't talk about. Cryptocurrency and stuff is not something that normal seminars talk about. And I feel like you guys are trying to cover everything which helps out those transitioning because you talk to a lot of guys that transition and they lose purpose. And this gives them purpose again. Uh, They have something they can go to. Even if it's these symposiums and stuff, it's letting them know that there is life there after the military.
1: Yeah, so, so in 2015, we formed the Soft for Life program. You know, and I'd love to sit here and tell you, hey, we want to take care of the community. It really started at a, a foundation small business committee meeting. And the small business guys are like, how do we hire more special ops students? And I'm like, well, shit, how do you do it now? Well, we go to headhunters, you know, we got dad, We do, so, and it's all, you know, catch catch can, word of mouth. It's not, there's no institutional anything there. And then, you know, what you find is that most of the people in the special ops community don't know how to prepare themselves for transition. And so what the companies actually see is a mess. The person could be awesome, but because the person doesn't know what they're doing, it doesn't come across that way. So we formed the Soft for Life program. Um, There's three nonprofits. There's the Honor Foundation, there's the Global Soft Foundation, and AFMA. And it started with us and we were taking in resumes and we were storing them for all the individual members. And, and then, you know, somebody says these resumes suck. Well, I'm not a resume guy. that's not what I do, you know? Um, and so we partnered with the honor foundation who runs a 120 hour course training, special ops people on how to um, transition. It's first class world class. They spend about $10,000 per student on each one. Um, it's amazing what they do. Their metrics are really high. They have about over 93% of them are placed within 30 days of the retirement. Average salary is over 145,000, that's officer and NCO. About 80% go into the you know, the, the private sector and about 20% go into the, the public sector. You That's flipped over time. And they were only about four months older than we are. So we've been working together, both of us, I say, since birth, since we were both infants. Um, we have a phenomenal relationship with that organization. They have a campus. They just formed a campus uh, last week at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, in uh, Southern Pines, um, and it's going to help everybody in that location transition. They've got one in San Diego. They've got one in Virginia Beach, and they've got one down at Stone Bay uh, for the Marsoc guys. Um, as you know, as, as they get bigger and the more funding available, they will proliferate more campuses throughout the Special Ops community. But they're second to none. Um, and, and you know I, it's really important that we help those people. I, I don't know if you've seen if you go to our we have a sawforlife.org website you should go and read the survey results. We do a survey about every it ends up being about every three years. It takes us a year to get the survey together. we send it out. We have like f- almost 500 responses this year but um, we ask medical questions for the first time and and um, and we've got a community that's not healthy, right? And that's mentally, physically, spiritually, it's just not healthy. We all know it, you know, um, while you're on active duty, you lie a lot, you know, and people say, oh, you know, honor, that's bullshit, we lie. How you doing? Great. You can look, take one look at the person, he's full of shit, he's hurting, but he'll never say anything because they're not, we don't select and assess people that think or act like that. We select you and assess you because you will go until the last drop of blood pumps through your heart and so when you ask these people, do they have pain? They lie. Do you ask them, are they okay? They, of course I'm okay. They lie, you know, um, um, and they do that because they're committed to the mission and the organization. And they will often do that at the detriment to themselves and to the unit. Right. Um, And so, and we're not very good at saying no to our, our, our partners or our teammates and stuff. And so as a community, we suck at it. It's hard to be a leader. You know, it's easy to sit back and say, damn it, you ought to do this. But, you know, I mean, I was guilty as anybody. You know, I didn't want to be the person to tell them no. You know, you just don't want to be like that. Mm -hmm. So um, we've committed a lot to helping these people. Um, We're trying to make them better. Um, Some of them are the smartest, best trained people in the world. They they do do some stupid shit. Um, But, you know, uh, that's normal. We do have bad people. That's normal um so you know this is not a perfect world um we do have bad behavior and bad behavior is bad behavior you know and and it, we got to clean it up you know you got to terminate it quickly um and, and and historically we have we've done that we go through episodic periods where we just get you know a bunch of knuckleheads and we just kind of lose our way and then you know we kind of get our act together and we you know we focus and we we clean up the community a bit and um it's a, it's the tightest organization i've ever community i've ever seen in the world um you know again most of us grew up together we're friends um we've buried a lot of our friends over the years so you know uh, we were again we were losing people well before 9 11 you know um just everybody else got involved at that point and so and the numbers went up everything got a little bit more busy um for everybody but um you know we we just think the software life program is a great program um, it's going to have a, a lasting effect on the community, and uh, we're just getting started, you know, just getting started. Let's talk
0: about one more thing. Uh, you are no stranger to podcast. I'm sure you were when you started it, but now you have the Soft Spot podcast. Uh, you yeah. do it with uh, Chelsea Hamishin, and then Rick Lamb comes on. Is it is it Hamishin? Is that right?
1: That is correct. Okay.
0: It, yeah. yeah, Chelsea Hamishin and uh, Rick Lamb. Uh, You talk to SOF legends. Uh, Some of your topics have been homage to Spain's Green Berets, the story of soldiers, Just Cause, plus Slate 46 in the same episode. You have Operation Eagle Claw on there. And when you hear this, you talk to the people that were there. I mean, like the people that were in it. And so if people want to hear combat stories and want to hear it from the people that were on the ground, it's a fantastic podcast to listen to.
1: Yeah, you know, we got to, you know, so the problem you have in the soft community is a lot of what you do is is classified or sensitive, right? So, you know, we're the quiet professionals. Um, We tend to be silent professionals. Um, We tend to have a lot of people that don't like the media, don't want to talk to the media. Um, And in the age of the Internet and social media stuff, we can't really do that, right? So we have to train ourselves to be better than that. we, we have also have a service to our young people. I think, you know, we need to capture oral history. Uh, we tend to relive things, you know, um, and I think we owe it to our young people to capture the oral history. There's been a lot of great things that have been done by a lot of great men and women uh, from our community. And I just think that, you know, the, the, the podcast do that. I mean, this is about Chelsea. I mean, if you've ever met her, that is the Ray Lewis of podcasts. That woman's got a motor like you have never seen in your life. I mean, she, I don't know how many hours she works a day, but it's damn near all of them. And I mean, she just, she enjoys it. Um, I am investing in her more and more uh, because she's insanely talented. She does videos and I mean, she's just one of the most creative human beings I've been around in a long time. I'm sure father, great man, is a former Marine colonel, so she's been raised right, you know. Uh, She's a phenomenal swimmer, so if she ever says you want to race in the pool, don't do it because she will embarrass you. I mean, she will absolutely flat put you away. I mean, she can swim with any SEAL team dudes. Oh, yeah, she can get it on, man. Um, she, I think she can still compete competitively in a lot of those things. So she did the, I think she did the Tampa Bay Swim last year. It was four or five miles out in the bay and back. it was cold too. so But she did a great job. Um, she's done a great job with these. And the other thing is Rick Lamb, you know, um, Rick and I have been together since Panama days in the 80s. He's a legend, you know? I mean, he's what makes our community special. Um, Rick is a young man from Iowa, um, that's salt of the earth, um, got his first silver star at Panmunjom, killed seven or nine North Koreans there. How many people know that? Um, Rick is one of the two people in the entire special forces regiment that was allowed to go back and forth from the Rangers and SF, um. You know, now that we're a branch, you know, the infantry branch would never allow it. But, you know, it's something he, Rick, and I both think are, you know, called the crosswalk. General Dave Grange made it happen. But, you know, it's just they'll never let it happen. I'm a big believer in letting, you know, people go back and forth from each of those things because I think you learn a lot from everybody. But, hey, you know, I'm just one of these old guys now. So um, Rick is Gotten the Bull Simons Award, which is the highest award SOCOM gives. He's been inducted in the Commando Hall of Fame, the Ranger Hall of Fame. And last week, he was designated the Honorary Regimental Sergeant Major of First Special Forces, which is all the Grey Berets. So he loves stuff like this. He has every uniform, almost down to every piece and part of it, from the 1916 expeditionary stuff into Mexico. Wow. All the way up to today. Today, he's actually building a thirty-caliber machine gun. He's got, you know, all the weapons. I mean, authentic. Like he went and got the tax stamp to get the ten-inch barrel for this Thompson submachine gun. Wow, it's not automatic, but because you can't feed it. You know, those things eat a lot when they're automatic, so you got to.
0: <laughs> That's amazing.
1: But he's got all that stuff, and he's says he can tell you about each and every piece of the uniform, like in detail. Like, you know, why they did this. And what you'll see is um, we did a thing with Carl Erickson, Sergeant Major Carl Erickson with the tactical rifleman. If you ever go to YouTube and watch those things, Rick walks through every single uniform. I think we filmed for like eight hours. Um, and it is it is amazing what we relearn over and over and over. And it was great seeing two Sergeant Majors realize, because I kept telling them, I'm sure some officer told you to do all that crap. But, you know, um, yeah, we, we tend to relearn the same things over and over again. And I think, you know, by having these podcasts and everything, I think we give young people um, a snapshot of history without reading a big old hairy book that's about that thick.
0: So what's next for you, Stu?
1: Uh, well, right now, you know, the, the foundation is in a in a growth spurt. Um, we're trying to get the right corporate partners, not just any corporate partner, you know, I mean, the, the first word special for a reason. We want um, corporate partners and individual members that are part of the community that, you know, that have the same ethos and standards that the community does, you know. Um, I think it's important. I think this is a, a really great moment in the special ops period of time. I think when you see things like Afghanistan, it's going to only make us you know, the community more busy, not less busy. Um, and I, you know, I'm just, my concern is, I don't think we have enough of us and and you can't replicate us. Right. So we're going to have to rely on more partners everywhere to do that. You know, we're going to have to build better networks, better alliances with our partners, you know, get them up to speed. They're going to have to be more involved because you just can't make enough special ops, just physically impossible. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're focused on Asia's coming up here real soon, and we're just trying to, to uh, you know, do everything a little bit better. You know, when you start out in a startup, um, you're just flying by the seat of your pants, man. I mean, you're just, every day's a bar fight. Um, as we get a little bit more mature, uh, you gotta kind of, you know, you gotta kind of institutionalize a lot of the things you do. And that's what we're trying to do now. We're trying to get better. You know, we want to be, you know, we don't want to just do it. We want to do it really, really, really well, like to the point where people go, damn. Um, And that's what we're focused on now. I think what we do now is really good, um, but we're pretty critical of each other. And I think what we really want to do is make it amazing, make all of our events an experience, you know, where people just, you know, are blown away by what we do. That's kind of the direction we want to go.
0: Well, to kind of wrap this up, it was uh, it was amazing to talk to you, just to hear these stories, uh, hear, hear stuff that people would have never heard. I would have never thought about the German border. I would have never thought about the things that you did over in Panama. But if you want more of Stu and you want to help out this organization, you can find him at the Global SOF, and that is at gsof.org. And with the SOF for Life that he was talking about, you can find them at sofforlife.org. Once again, to find him, gsof.org and then the sofforlife.org. That's going to be it for tonight. Stu, it was a pleasure and an honor to have you on. If you guys want more of me, you can find me on Twitter at Double Speak DJ. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD Podcast, and you can find me on YouTube at the DTD Podcast. Also, remember, I'm on all the podcast sites, so if you want to hear these stories, you can find us anywhere there. Remember, the best stories are true, and you come here every week because we give them to you. That's Stu. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later.
1: Thanks.